You're listening to 1 plus 2 plus 3 plus 4, where we ask creative minds 10 questions about their passion and their process. I'm Jose James. Today's guest is the amazing singer, songwriter, producer, and Rainbow Blonde Records co-founder, Tali. I think the answer is that as an artist, there's a part of me that's just never satisfied. Never. And people talk about that like that's a bad thing. But I don't think it is. I think it's what makes me create, and I think it's why I create. Tali is an electric musical force and community builder. Her music, described as a beguiling mix of tropical pulse, chamber pop, avant electronica, and quiet storm, addresses identity, love, and overcoming trauma. Tali weaves a landscape drawing from the empowering Judaic culture passed down from her family and the uplifting stories of the fierce woman she surrounds herself with. Her debut album, I Am Here, arrives March 22nd on her own Rainbow Blonde Records. With it, she announces a new sound you've never heard, Jewish contemporary pop music. Co-produced by Tali, the music is profoundly, deeply alive and includes breaths, claps, hand glides, and heavily layered vocals. I sat down with Tali in her Lower East Side home surrounded by her books of poetry, of fiction, and many instruments, synths, piano, and lots of love. I do have to let you know this podcast contains explicit language. Here's what we talked about. Um, unlike every other guest we've had on here, you know all the questions in advance. <laughs> because we wrote them together. Yes. So you know the first question is, what are you working on right now? Well, let me just say um, in advance of this podcast that I realized as you said that, that I have prepared exactly 0% for this. Perfect. Yeah, you would think that as I interviewed everyone that I've interviewed, I would have thought about my answers for this question, and I have not. That being said, what am I working on right now? Right now, I am working on so much, as you know. And last night I finally slept 13 hours to wow. try and <laughs> to try and um, catch up with all the things I'm working on. I am working on my second album because I don't want to be caught by surprise when we get into album two. And having worked at a label for years that wasn't ours, I know that I watch this with other artists. So I'm currently writing for album two. Wow. Yeah. And how's that going? It's good. Uh. It's a little difficult when the sound is mine Mm -hmm. um because the first album was so came together so quickly as you know but maybe the other people listening to this don't know yeah people people might be confused they're like which album and it's it's (laughs) technically not out yet (laughs) my first album is out yet It's called I Am Here. Yes, my first album <laughs> comes out on Rainbow Blonde Records on fr- Friday. This Friday. This Friday, March 22nd. Um, so yeah, I'm currently writing for the next one, of course, because what kind of workaholic would I be if I wasn't doing that? Exactly. Um, but I'm also working on our label. We started a label. So those things are constant work, and I feel as though I'm constantly learning. Um, there's business and you know just vinyl production and cd production and how do you make a (laughs) t-shirt um touring we're booking tours for this current album not for album number two thankfully um and 
then I'm also working just personally, not as an artist, on myself and mm. how I move through the world, how I interact with people. Uh, and that's what I'm working on right now. Do you think this is like... Um like an inherently 2019 kind of situation. Like your new album's about to drop. You're very much aware of the whole sophomore slump. You've seen it with your friends or with other artists, famous bands. Yeah. You're already writing. You're also doing your social media. You're plugged in, like, you know, in a way that's very now. Yeah. Do you feel like that's, that's something that's like a new kind of hurdle for a creative, for a, a musician today? Yeah, it's interesting that you ask that. I feel like you and I talk about this a lot. Um, yes and no. I think any year, you could say if you did whatever, the, if you did a radio interview, there weren't podcasts, but if you did this in 1979, you could ask the person across from you, do you think this is a unique hurdle? We've never been able to record music so quickly before. You know, like I, I, I think yes and no. Yes, it is a unique hurdle. But I try as hard as I can as an artist to not get caught up on the idea that this unique hurdle is somehow insurmountable. So for me, I feel as though I am uniquely suited <laughs> for this mm. type of hurdle. So I'm very thankful to be around in 2019. Um, not for for political reasons. I'm not super thankful. Mm. <laughs> but like, I heard that. The things that people dislike that you just described that people might experience as difficult for me, I love and would want to be doing if I didn't have the freedom to be doing them. If I were an artist in 1981, I would be dreaming of being able to know everything that was going on with the business and really pick my team and all those kinds of things. That to me, I like to look at it as a benefit. Totally. So new album coming out this Correct. week. Um, I co-hosted a listening party for Rainbow Blonde Records with you. It's true. And we were able to share it finally with a lot of people. Mm. I think it's a total masterpiece. Thank you. Um, but take us take us into this moment. Like, how does it feel putting out your debut album? Amazing and terrifying. <laughs> I, this is actually kind of cool because you caught me on Monday. And it comes out on Friday. And so at once, I'm so fully in the future in my head. Um, the good of the future and the bad of the future. Mm. I'm, I'm thinking, wow, I'm so excited for people to finally experience it. Because that's the other thing is that I've been... One of these songs that's on this album is five years old. Mm. I wrote it five years ago, you know. And so the idea that somebody in Japan or Holland or I'm, I'm getting emotional thinking mm. about it, you know, that, that they, that somebody could have the vinyl and like put it down and, and experience something from my experience is the best gift in the world. So thank you to whoever founded Rainbow Blonde. I don't know. <laughs> <laughs> Some great people. Yeah. <laughs> um, what's the most unexpected thing? that's happened in your career? You know, the most unexpected thing that happened in my career is when Jose James asked me to write for him. Mm. Just answering. I really haven't thought about these answers, but that was what I thought. 
um, and everything that came after that. Because when you asked me to write on your album, I was in such a creative slump, mm. you know? Because I, I put out an album, very much in quotes, um, when I was really young. And I was playing Rock a Music Hall in, in the Lower East Side in New York and had this sort of like folk thing going. And you had been to one of those shows. But Great show. <laughs> but I Shout felt out Rockwood Music Hall. Mm-hmm, but I felt still very much as though I were. In, I felt like I was in a slump at that time, and I was working at Blue Note Records, where you um, are signed to and were signed to at the time. And I had made this session called the Orchard Sessions out of my apartment on Orchard, and I had made it just so that I could love music again, because mm. I had never felt that way at the time. I just, every, I couldn't listen to it. I felt like, and it's funny because at Rainbow Blonde, I don't feel like this. Mm. But at, when I was working at Blue Note and through no fault of the wonderful people there, but when I was working there, I felt like if you worked with chicken every day, mm. you would never want to eat chicken, you know? <laughs> like the process of making that first album that I made just took all my joy. And I was not prepared. And in everyone else's defense, I didn't do my research. And I didn't learn or think about what would go into it. I didn't promote it. I didn't mm. tour it, you know. But I just felt really, for the first time in my life, really disillusioned with music. So I made the Orchard Sessions, which were sessions where I had my favorite singers come in and they we sang their songs. I would sing, but I was part of the ensemble. Um, and so, you know, I was doing that. I was hanging on the Lower East Side. I had no idea where I was headed when you asked me to write on your album, I had been talking about an EP, you know, for four years. Mm. And you caught me in because I, you know, I, as you remember, I brought in Becca Stevens, um, who my best friend, to come and um, sing on your record. And then you said, hey, you know, I have this song that I can't quite finish and uh, maybe you could help. I'm thinking it might be a breakup song and like I had broken up with my ex-boyfriend maybe three weeks before mm. and it's that moment and I feel like it's a really key thing for our listeners to know about. It's that moment that's so key where no, I had never written for someone else. I had no intention of writing for anyone else. I did not see myself as a songwriter, but I just said like, yeah, I write, sure. <laughs> and you and I wrote so fast and so organically um just just for the people listening at home who may not know this talia um is one of the dopest lyricists of her generation it wasn't just like she just happened to come out of nowhere um and you know and it's very rare to find i think great lyricists uh, who are not in the musical theater world yeah you know or rappers just straight up I Mm -hmm. i feel like that's where lyricists go now Mm. you know um and lyrics used to be a bigger deal in a way Mm -hmm. you know Mm -hmm. like we talk about this a lot with like the great writing teams of Tin Pan Alley and Broadway shows Mm -hmm. and you know what I mean um and I feel like you really have a, a a beautiful sense of that level of that craft which sort of came together in a strange way with like the Joni Mitchells the Stevie Wonders you know, the Paul Simons who... Leonard Cohen. Yeah, Leonard Cohen, who, you know, were able to write and 
do the lyrics, you know? Mm. So for me, um, I'm not always able to, well, and especially on that album, I wasn't fully able to express myself as, as, as in a well-rounded way, Mm -hmm. you know? Um, I could sort of like get to a place and then you were able to take me deeper and further, you know, and that was really cool. Thank you. you. That's so beautiful. Yeah. I, well, thank you for that compliment. While you were sleeping, this is the <laughs> album. But if y'all, y'all want to go out and check that, Deep some dive. of her earlier work. Yeah, and I, um, it's funny because the way I wrote for you is exactly the same way I write for people ever since. Um, and for those of you who don't know this, I make sort of like a matrix of um, lyrics, all of, which, all of which are interchangeable. And it just, I didn't think about it, but it was, I just typed so quickly. <laughs> That's what I gave you the first time. And you loved it so much. Mm. And I didn't know why, but now when I bring it into every session, it's like a party trick. <laughs> I did it for Becca Stevens recently and, and Becca also. It's great when you go home because then you can kind of like marinate with the lyrics. And thank you so much for that compliment because lyrics to me are, are the most important part. Um, mm-hmm. My mom really loves lyrics and Sometimes I think she listens to lyrics more than the music. Mm. And my dad also, and they always used to sort of point them out to me in the car or, you know, when they were cleaning. Did you hear that thing, you know, and, mm. and tell me who wrote the song? I was really aware of the songwriters versus the singers. And um, That's interesting. Yeah. You know, my dad really loves uh, Angel from Montgomery. He loves the Bonnie Raitt recording, but he would always say John Prine wrote it, mm. you know. Um, or my mom would always tell us when Joni Mitchell wrote, you know, another Bonnie Raitt song that we love that song about the midway and just those kinds of things and I love lyrics and it's funny because you're right it's such a secondary part of music now in terms of what people consider but to me it's not and that's actually again just like 2019 what you were saying earlier that's been to my advantage Mm. I get called in a lot to fix lyrics that people didn't care about but when the singer sang it they were like what the fuck is this (laughs) um you know and I also think that lyrics and I hope I'm not stepping on any toes but I think that lyrics from when the singer is writing their own lyrics often become just a little too confessional oh yeah in a way that um Fall in love with your own, the sound of your own voice. Yeah, in yeah. a way that Joni Mitchell never allowed, never got to that navel gazy place. Mm. And I think it's because of how much she valued lyrics. Mm-hmm. And I think if you, there is a very tricky place if you fell in love with Joni Mitchell or Leonard Cohen where you want to, you know, like a case of you, for example, um, that she, that Joni Mitchell wrote about Leonard Cohen. You could feel like that's confessional. Mm. She's directly quoting Leonard Cohen. You know, she's like, just before our love got lost, you said, I am as a constant as a northern star. That how It can't technically get more confessional as that, but it's not. Mm-hmm. And the song's so broad, so I try and um, incorporate that. Oh, my God, I've gone so off topic. I'm sorry. No, this is, <laughs> this is literally your podcast, so you can, you can really do whatever you want to do. Do whatever I want. So do you... I'm interested in this. Do you feel that connection to poetry with your own work and obviously you see that with Leonard Cohen and Joni Mitchell they were huge fans of prose and poetry but like for yourself like interesting that... do I read poetry yeah I mean 
Do you read it? it do you feel a certain kinship with I any don't, poets actually. or any writers like that? I mean, I love I love writers. Mm-hmm. I I'm my house is completely full of books, and Marie Kondo will not be touching my books. Um, but poetry in itself, I love Mary Oliver um, and Lorca, but I'm not. Those aren't my go tos. Mm. Songs are. Yeah, love that. Yeah. <laughs> Thanks. People often ask about the who, what, when, how, and where of creation, but they rarely ask why. Why do you create? We've had so many good answers to this on our podcast. We really have. When Now whenever I hear that question, I get all excited. Mm-hmm. Right. It's like, <laughs> what are you going to say? I know. Cause I, but, and I, again, have not thought about it. <laughs> yeah. Um, but for me, to some end, I echo an answer earlier in this podcast of I create because I must. Um, Maddie said that. And Maddie also tied it in a really lovely Jewish way that I relate to, to mental health. Mm. Um, If I don't create, I really start to get squirrely. But every time I've been listening to this, the answers to this question, I've been trying to think of if I can remember the first time I created. I can't quite. But I do remember I wrote a poem when I was maybe in first grade and it won a competition. Mm. (laughs) And everybody was so into this poem. And I think there's a part of me just being fully honest that really likes to be celebrated for my creations. Who doesn't? (laughs) No, but this is a little OD. Like I've had journals since I was four and there's parts where I, I sign, you know, I used to write, you know, dear, uh, Michal was the name of my journal. And then at the end, I would say, sincerely, Talia Billig, poetry comp- contest winner. <laughs> but the other real reason... That's re- amazing, though. It's good to be proud of yourself. I was achievements. very proud. Yeah. But yeah, why do I create? It's such a good question. Because I know what I want my creations to be for someone else, but the why is, mm. is, is so beautiful. And I think, honestly, the answer, now that we have spent this long time going through this, I think the answer is that as an artist, there's a part of me that's just never satisfied. Mm-hmm. Um, never. And people talk about that like that's a bad thing. But I don't think it is. I think it's what makes me create, and I think it's why I create. There's a part of me that's that five-year-old at the end of a roller coaster, just looking around being like, that's it. Mm. (laughs) And I, not that five-year-olds would ever go on a roller coaster. Please don't take your (laughs) five-year-olds on roller coasters. But I, um, (laughs) I, if a five-year-old said that's it after a roller coaster, I would be really impressed with that (laughs) five-year-old. But anyway, back to this. Um, I want to, I want to, reach new things and learn new things and, and practice. That's my favorite new part of my creating lately um, is getting better at songwriting and sitting down and th- and lately one really thing I really struggled with writing pop songs in LA is choruses. Mm. I'm amazing at pre-choruses and pretty good at verses, but writing a banger pop chorus is very hard for me. So the first moment, and it was very recently up at my parents' house in Hastings, where I sat down and sang through. I had been putting the pieces to the song together for like a week. 
and I sat down and sang a chorus organically. Mm. <gasps> what a moment. I, I, my fingers felt electric. Like mm. I'm playing piano and it was just like my whole body lit up. And that moment is better than any high I've ever experienced. Mm. And that is why I create. Great answer. Thank you. <laughs> <laughs> well, I don't need to introduce this question because you wrote this one. <laughs> and this actually is the, the hardest question. People have a lot of trouble they get with stumped. this question. They get stumped. If you heard the unedited versions, there's this like long pause. Everyone's like, yo, I, I have no idea. What? what? I hope that through our podcast, people start asking that question of themselves and of other people. True. It's that a really would be important a question. Great, a great accomplishment for me. Well, now today you're on the hot seat. Thank you. So, number four, what's your favorite thing on earth right now outside of your creative field? Tell me if this counts. One thing I'm really loving right now is vinyl. Yes. Does that count as my outside of my creative field? I think so. Okay. One thing I'm really obsessed with right now is vinyl. I was living in LA for two years, and I, God bless the place where I lived, but it was tiny. Mm. It was 400 square feet. And so there wasn't any space for a system or it was just, it was a perfect place to write this album mm. and to learn about myself. But now that I have moved back to my beautiful place on Orchard, which has this amazing sound system, I now have the gift of a system. And so one of my favorite things on earth right now is to just sit and listen to an album mm. and put it down and make a cup of tea and drink the cup of tea and um, listen and flip the album and look at the liner notes and all of that. To that end, another one of my favorite things on earth right now is this book I'm reading called Love Your Enemies. Mm. I think I spoke about it on another podcast episode that it's, I don't know if we've put that one out yet. It is changing my life. Mm. Um, and the concept of of the the idea of broadening what an enemy might be and then it, it eventually dismantling that. Wow. Um, because you can't have enemies if you're gleaning your sense of purpose and love from yourself. Ah! <laughs> <laughs> That's another one of my favorite things on earth right now. But you know my real favorite thing on earth right now outside of my creative field and fully outside because those Tell two us. were kind of cheat answers is my car. Mm. I have a car. Her name is Iris. She's named after Iris Apfel, another one of my favorite people, um, probably my favorite person on earth right now. Legend. Um, Iris, my car is named after Iris Apfel. She's a small blue Prius C. I had her in Los Angeles and it was a, she changed my entire life in Los Angeles. And then I drove her all the way back to New York and having her in New York, what, this is a huge privilege to say, and I almost feel embarrassed saying it, but I just love her so much. And I've become really part of like a little alternate side parking, <laughs> like gang in Chinatown. And we all kind of look out for each other, but also sometimes get in fights. And it's a whole thing from 11 to 1230 on Tuesdays or Fridays. And it's very stressful, but I also really love her because <laughs> she gets me out the house and you know, I can drive and go on tour and, um, you know, go to New Jersey whenever the fuck I want to. And, you know, I went up to Woodstock the other weekend. It was amazing. Mm. 
So I yeah, feel like owning a car in New York is like the next level New it's, Yorker. It's it is right? such a joy. Um, it's like get you know you get your first apartment with roommates, then you get your own apartment by yourself. Yeah, in a car. I know, and someday. <laughs> and then you own a place. I know. Someday I'm gonna be doing well enough that she will have a parking space, mm. and that's like. That's as far as my head can think right now. Because I just love her so much. As soon as I get in that car, because there's a picture of Iris Apfel on the dashboard, and there's the three, um, me do, like the three principles I'm trying to live by that my rabbi gave me, you know, mm. on the driving, what that, what is that thing called? The steering wheel. And I have like <laughs> a little beanie baby that a guy gave me in LA in a deli. He's there. So it's just all, it's just this perfect little place. But yeah, to me, that's how the answer should be of like, what's your favorite thing on earth right now? I, I like to be able to rattle off like a bunch. Also mangoes. Mangoes are back in season mm. and they have been on sale in so many stores and I love them. <laughs> I, I, this question is my question because favorite is a big thing for me. And I feel like as a bummer, our, our president has ruined superlatives for me. Like I speak in very dramatic speak and mm. he has really messed that up for me. Right. Take it back. <laughs> Make superlatives great again. <laughs> that was levels of funny. Well done. Uh, what's one question you wish people would ask you? That's a good question. What's one question I wish people would ask me? I wish people would ask me more about my lyrics. Hmm. I do, actually. Um, thank you for asking me. Again, because of what we've discussed, I think that people care less about lyrics. It's so funny. People are so obsessed with story now, and I put that in big air quotes that nobody could see. Um, but you give them an entire album's worth of story, mm. and they don't want to talk about that. Um, you know, and by the way, to their credit, fans listen the fuck to lyrics. That's true. And they come to the show, and they tell me, you know, even in the show live, if they've never seen me, they're like, wow, this, I'm going through this and this is what it meant to me. Like, that's what lyrics can be for me. And I wish that there were more of a forum for the discussion of lyrics because I love them so much. Hmm. Yeah. Well, here's a question I've always wanted to ask a songwriter, actually. Ooh. What's the connection or how do you view the connection between like a song title and the lyrics within the song. Huh. That's like it, interesting. Is it a gateway into the song? Does it represent the full meaning in one word or It can words? be both. Yeah. It can be both. Um, there, It can be both. There's one song on this album that comes out on Friday that I have. It's now called I Have Seen It For Myself. Mm. But originally I really wanted to call it In Which I Invite You To Fuck Off. <laughs> Great title. <laughs> I almost don't want to say it in case someone steals it. <laughs> Um, to me, that kind of title would have led you in to what the song actually was about, but we chose the more, um, palatable title because different countries and all that kind of stuff. Um, a song like Amelia by Joni Mitchell is one of my favorite songs on earth. Mm. That's a place where she's just dropping you, you know, Hansel and Gretel breadcrumbs the entire time, and the song is all about Amelia Earhart. But I listened to that song for five fucking years without realizing that. Mm. And it was like my favorite song, mm. you know? 
Um, or even just recently, um, literally two days ago, I was driving in my car downtown and I was listening to this Gabriel Kahane song called Charming Disease. Mm. And that song was, again, my song in like two, whenever it came out, maybe 2010, 2011. Um, but I listened back to it and realized, oh my God, this song's about alcoholism, like a charming disease, you mm. know? Um, but I completely missed that. Sometimes when you're writing and you have the song, you just kind of pick the whatever the most compelling part of the chorus is. Um, so that's the case in both Amelia and in Charming Disease. You know, he says, like, what a charming, what a charming, what a charming disease. Mm. Um, but I kind of like and there aren't a lot of them, to make titles that don't actually have anything that's named in the song. So one of my favorite songs on this album that comes out on Friday is called Right Sized. Mm. Um, and the entire song is about female lineage. Well, well really, lineage in general, ancestry. Um, and the chorus, I love, because I wrote it you know, when they were putting, well, still are, we had children in cages in our country mm. and um, I'm a Jewish woman and it just there I it was the first time that I felt acutely aware of generational trauma um, like I felt it in a place I haven't felt pain before mm. just something like deep and DNA related and I was just paralyzed on my couch in LA like I couldn't stop crying and I just kept thinking like what a stupid fucking thing I do what a trite stupid baseline thing I do. I write songs and there are children in cages, you mm. know? Um, but the thing I kept coming to all of last year is if I try and get involved in, you know, anything other than that, I'm not that good actually. I'm, I, I get, I break down if you ask me to speak in public about politics or any of that kind of stuff. So I probably should write songs. It's what I'm best at. <laughs> um, so the next day I kind of made this chorus that's, you know, about that lyrically um but the song's called right sized mm. the song's called right sized because of the idea of getting yourself not too big not too small right sized um and it came from i had sang this jewish prayer and taken out the prayer but kept the harmonies that i had put under it and the jewish prayer it says uh the essence the idea of it is he says, and, and the, the trick is not to be afraid, you know, and I was thinking of this other Jewish prayer, the idea being that you, the whole world is a narrow bridge in, in between fire and ice, and you want to go in the middle mm -hmm. of those two things. You want to experience fire, experience ice, but you want to walk right on the bridge of those two things. Mm -hmm. um, and so I That's called it. a cool it, image. Yeah, right. Um, and I called it right-sized, because to me, that's the entirety of that song is can I get myself to the exact right place and right size so that I can channel my lineage, help a future generation, you know, those kinds of things? That was a very long answer to your question. I'm sorry. No, that was, <laughs> that's beautiful. It's really deep. Thanks. Everybody's like, I need to get this album. I need to hear this. <laughs> um, speaking of this album, yeah. often the public is only seeing the tip of the iceberg on a creative project. They rarely see the years of hard work, the setbacks, the breakthroughs, the road trips, <laughs> and the hard decisions that get made every day. How does a project start for you? Or how did this project start for you? Mm. I am here and 
when, if ever, did it end? Well, again, as co-host of this podcast, I'm going to answer this in two questions, two answers, because I always feel like that they hear that last sentence, they answer that. Mm. Forget that amazing first part to that end. How did I am here start for me? I am here didn't really start for me. <laughs> um, I was writing songs for other singers in LA. I was getting settled into LA. Um, and I was living in my uncle's house. Um, thank God that man let me live in his house. Mm. And I was just, I'm, I was, I use Ableton Live and I, it's a software that I use to run my live show. And I was just starting to get into using it as a songwriting tool. And I had started making these demos and they weren't that good. Hmm. And I remember there's this concept in LA of you work with other producers for, for what's called publishing, which means that they get half of your writing royalties. And all my friends were doing it. But often I run into an issue as a creator where I just... I have a lot of trouble asking for things. Mm. Um, I really want my community to be a community and like Rainbow Blonde, this label that we co-founded, it's like my dream, but it's very hard and I almost never, you know, sort of send an email, the email I get all the time. Mm. <laughs> it's like, can you introduce me to this person? It's very hard for me. This is a long answer, but it's the truth. So I was driving, I drove my friend Sarah, amazing singer named Wokes, V-O-X. I drove Sarah across town. She was living in, somewhere on the east side and I was like way out on the west side. It's a long drive in case you don't live in LA. And I sort of said to her, I'm trying to find a co-producer but I can't find one. And she said, I know the guy, I love my guy and you guys would love each other. Mm. You know, and I, I live for those moments where somebody acts the same way that I act. I try and just like maintain those kinds of people around me because the rest of the people in my life and the people I've been writing for were not as um, open and generous mm. and Sarah which isn't to say they're bad artists or anything they just were protective of what I think they perceived as their connections sure so Sarah um, introduced me to this man Josiah Cozier who's a fucking genius how and Josiah and I started writing together and I had this one demo and I love this about Josiah I had all these demos but I had one that was called something like Jewy demo <laughs> J-E-W dash Y demo <laughs> And it's now Hear You Now, that song. Um, and I brought it to him, and we were flipping through my demos, you know, huh, huh, huh. and then it got to Hear You Now, and he's like, what is that? Mm. We need that. And it has these really, it has this intro that's these big layered vocals. And the intro as it stands on the recording is exactly what I had in the demo. Wow. Yeah. Um, just, I had started on what now is sort of one of my things in my sound of these big, like, choirs that are all layered parts of my voice. And we started writing on that. And I brought it to a friend and she was like, oh, this is a sound, like you have to keep going with this. And mm. so sort of against my instincts, I started leaning into my Jewish identity and my the beautiful parts of what I grew up with. Mm. Why, um, why against your instinct? Um, I had, be, I, that's a good question and one I should be considering the answer about. <laughs> you know, I, first of all, I grew up in this amazing Jewish home, this super open, um, actually pretty traditional, but very progressive and open-minded home. And when I left that home, I met a Judaism that was culturally just, I met the wrong people. 
um, and was around a lot of people who dealt with major issues of racism um, and sexism and all those kinds of things. And so I put that shit aside and was just mm. like, nope, I want nothing to do with that. Uh, and really just kind of cut myself off. And I, I just thought to myself, like, nobody wants, nobody wants to talk about Jewish people. Like, everyone hates the Jews. Like, mm. I don't even, <laughs> I'm having trouble with my own identity, so I'm not going to try and, like, get into that. You know, I had all of, because of what I grew up with, all these ideas of, like, what it would look like to lean on your, you know, never mind that Leonard Cohen did it for his entire career, but, right, you know. Right, right. <laughs> <laughs> um, so I would say that was sort of like against against it, you know. I I just there were just discussions that I thought were going to come up and did come up, by the way, hmm. that I wanted to avoid. Um, and so I thought by making music that <laughs> had nothing to do with my identity, I could avoid that. Mm. Um, and I, yet you chose to start to lean into it. Oh, I leaned all the way the fuck in. Yeah. <laughs> so yeah, we started writing, and um, you know, Josiah and I had put together an EP. We had four songs, uh, and you and I had started Rainbow Blonde, and we were going to just release that, and then we sent it. Can I say this? Of course. Okay, great. We sent it to Universal Japan, um, who amazingly licensed it. God bless them. If you're listening in Japan, I love you. And they said, we don't put out EPs here. We need an LP. Uh, and we, we need it in three weeks. <laughs> <laughs> and so... You called me, and thank you for this, because you are such an amazing and supportive creative partner, and you called and you said, listen, if you can't do this, no worries. I couldn't do this. But we will miss the deadline, and we'll have to wait a long time if you can't make this deadline. And I said, fuck it. <laughs> we'll write 10 songs mm. <laughs> in three weeks. And, and we did. And they're great. Thank you. <laughs> you, went, you went full Marvin Gaye on them. Yeah, um... And it was a real like whirlwind of a moment, and I loved it. Hmm. And that's what scares me about writing for album two, mm. is that sort of like candle is burning to the end of the candle, mm. you know, is a really... Didn't I tell you we needed a new album in three weeks? <laughs> <laughs> so after this podcast... <laughs> Bye. <laughs> but that's a really, in case you're listening, it's a really good way to write, man. Mm. Like it just, I couldn't be too precious. And that is one thing I really love about writing for people in LA. I love writing for other people because you're just, it doesn't, you're, it's not yours, so fuck it, you know? Um, but at a, at a point, I had everything I needed to say. That EP was everything I needed to say. So mm. everything past that I just viewed as kind of extra. So that's how that project started. And I don't know if it ever ends. Um, it's still going right now. We're, you know, making t-shirts and making the vinyl and I'll be touring it all over the world. And, uh, yeah. And as far as the tip of the iceberg, which is the part of the question I love, mm. I said this with Maddie when Maddie, ma you know, made a joke about me writing the whole album in three weeks. Like, I didn't write that album in three weeks. I wrote that album in 10 years. Mm. Like, I think it's essential to understand how long it takes to get to making good art. Mm. I had creative inclinations, you know, and had some talent, but it just wasn't there yet. Um, and it's funny because a lot, you know, I remember Charlie Purse, if you remember him, he's a yeah. teacher and an amazing musician. Legendary yeah. jazz drummer. At the new school. And he took me, he had this like big, 
pirate earring in one ear. Right. He took me to the side. Uh, pants, yeah. yeah. He took me aside after some ensemble performance at the new school. And he was like, you phrased like a dumbass. <laughs> <laughs> you, you really phrase like a, like a fucking idiot. Like, why do you breathe in the middle of words? You mm. know, like you should go home and try practicing sentences and singing them like a normal fucking human being. Wow. And harsh. yeah, and it's funny because partially he was right, mm. but I have leaned the fuck into that actually being my style. Mm. Um, and even past that have made breath a percussive part of this album. Right. Um, you know, and so I guess what I'm saying is like, he was right. And For also, yeah, it was right. Yeah. yeah, but, but also I needed six years to figure out how to incorporate that in a way that didn't sound insane. Mm. Um, mm-hmm. you know, and so. I value always, I was saying this to Cece, which hasn't come out yet, her podcast from where I hosted her weeks ago. I said to her, I value the middle. I want to hear about the middle, Mm. not the beginning. I don't want to hear about where I was and how I got into writing. And I don't want to hear about the end. I want to hear about the middle because that part's the hardest to sustain yourself through. Mm. It's the hardest when you're at the middle and it just sort of sounds okay. And you know it should sound better, but you can't figure out how to get yourself there. That part to me is essential. Mm. That part to me separates somebody who does art for a profession versus somebody who does art for a hobby. Deep, man. Deep. Um, This is a good one. Mm. What are your thoughts on solo work versus collaboration and how does that play a role in your work? Yeah, so solo work versus collaboration. I, on the outside, my entire life, my ethos, everything I live by is collaboration. I want to live in a world where people celebrate each other more and, you know, take less holding of it as if it's only yours. I just find Mm. that to be so destructive. I hate the idea of a lone genius. I Mm. fucking hate that idea. Um, And so collaborative work to me, everything is collaborative work. There is no solo work. Because even when I'm writing something technically all by myself, it's with... 30 years in my brain of Joni Mitchell lyrics and, you know, Paul Simon harmony and Marvin Gaye. Um, so even in that, and I don't think that there is solo work. And as soon as you want to get it anywhere, you need other people. And I, I honestly think that the world would be so much better if we all saw it that way, you know, and that's part of why we made this label. Mm. Um, and that's part of what I really wanted to do was to, cause I had worked at a label. I worked at Blue Note Records and like, God bless that label. But it's, it's like most other labels where the label is seen as, as the secondary part to the artist. And I don't like that, mm. you know, so I like to even see our business now as a collaborative celebration, you know, so we get to talk about Kristen Lee, our amazing business manager. How? Yeah, you know, or um, Jeanette Beckman is mm. legendary photographer, just like there's so much collaboration. But as far as solo work, if I ever am doing quote unquote solo work, I generally see it as I'm channeling or not. I'm rarely involved in it. It's rarely it's never just me. It's interesting you say that because I feel like some of your favorite artists sort of are the epitome of the lone wolf. You're so right. Like <laughs> what a bummer. J.D. Salinger. <laughs> Joni Mitchell. Joni Bob Mitchell, Dylan. Bob Dylan. I truly hate how right you are right now. <laughs> Leonard Cohen. Oh, what a bummer. Yeah, it's funny. Becca Stevens once said that to me too where I was talking about what I, you know, she was like, you love only string players and you don't play a string instrument. <laughs> 
you're right and I don't have the answer for it. <laughs> Maybe I admire, you know, their creative drive, but mm. when it comes to my heart, I can't not do that. I come from a big family. You yeah. know, like I just I want I want everybody to get their their moment in the mm. spotlight in the sun. And also it's a total myth, you know, Salinger had editors. Exactly. Had, you know, people reading over the copy, you know. Yeah, if there's no one no one works alone. He also truly. was a nightmare, just while we're talking about the writer that mm. I love so much. In his lone wolfness, drastically abused someone. Mm. Anyway. <laughs> um do you believe in the some things are for money versus some things are for art's sake concept? I do not. I do not. I think that anything that you're doing quote unquote for money, I, I think that all of the shame should be taken out of money and art. Hmm. I think every, all of art would be better if we all just stopped fucking around mm-hmm. and, you know, lying. I think anytime someone tells you that something's for money versus something's for art, they have a fucking trust fund. Mm. I'm sorry. Like, I, I, if your money's coming from a place and I just, I just, I can't in good conscience as somebody who's had to like work really hard to pay my rent and do so many things for money and not mm. for art, I don't see a separation. Um, that being said, fucking, you know, pay your artists. Mm. <laughs> Um, there are, you know, Curly said something really smart where he was saying that he'll, he'll do something free if he really believes in it, but he will take his fee if you're, you know, profiting off of him and it's, and you could call someone else, you know? So I, that absolutely. Um, but there's nothing I sort of see as like, oh, I'll just do this and I'll put half of myself into it so that I can pay for something else. Mm -hmm. Um, and that's why I was a terrible temp. (laughs) 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 <laughs> that's funny <laughs> what inspired you to become a creative professional um as you know this question is intended for like students or younger people younger creatives who are you know studying working trying to figure it out but maybe haven't found a way to take that leap mm. to take that step mm-hmm. you know so is there a particular moment or time you can think of where it shifted where you're like okay this is this is what i do now, this is who I am. This is my identity. Yeah, I love this question. It happened so late for me. I never in my life thought I was going to do anything other than music. I'm pretty thankful for that. I'm pretty good at a lot of things. I'm spectacularly good, for example, at being an executive assistant. Mm. Um, and I was one for years. But, the, you know, there was no part of me that was like, oh, I want to be a scientist or, I want, you know. Um, I knew I wanted to sing since I was eight. I, that's the first thing I remember saying I wanted to do. Wow. Yeah. Um, but I wasn't that good of a singer, honestly. Like, mm. I had a nice voice, but I only started really singing. That's harsh. You're crushing your eight-year-old self. Oh. <laughs> well, no one told me. Everybody thought I was real good, and I honestly think that was part of the problem. Mm. I didn't start, like, really singing, and I mean fucking singing, till two or three years ago. Mm. Um, because I didn't have anything to sing about. I think that sometimes there are some artists, like you can listen to Michael Jackson and he's mm. nine and singing about heartbreak mm. in a way that you're like, who the fuck <laughs> broke your heart, man? What nine-year-old made you feel what everybody else feels at, you know, 26? Yeah, totally. Jesus, you know? <laughs> um, or like young Ella Fitzgerald or, you know, those kinds of things. Like, mm. I was not that eight-year-old. Um, I had a really pretty voice. 
That's what I mean. It wasn't bad. It was pretty. Mm -hmm. And I had nothing to sing about. And even when I sang about, you know, heartbreak or any of those things, Charlie Persip wasn't that far off. Mm. <laughs> I didn't know how to phrase it in a way that you could connect to it. I didn't cons ever consider the audience mm. and how they were experiencing what I was singing. It was all selfishly sort of like for myself, how I sang. Um, that being said, I never, you know, so, so all of that to say, like I moved into the world assuming I was going to be an artist and having no idea how to do that, hmm. you know? And so I've talked, I talked about this earlier in the podcast, you know, my first album, I did a really bad job of it being my profession. I went into it with this sort of hubris, like, oh, well, I made an album. You go listen to it. Hmm. That's your job. <laughs> um, you know, and I'm glad I did that because everything just sat and some, I think it's much more painful Honestly, sometimes you feel like it would be better if people hated something or loved it. But when it's just sort of people are kind of indifferent, mm. it's very painful, especially if you have a sort of a head of on, on your shoulders like I do. <laughs> so I was working at Blue Note Records and I was working for Bruce Lenvall, like rest in peace. I loved him. and Legend. Yeah. And Bruce loved things the way I loved things, mm. even more so. He loved music more than anyone I've ever met. And anytime he heard something that like he really loved, he would die for it. Mm. You know, like he would just, he would like, that was it. We wouldn't sleep. He, neither he nor I would sleep until that person <laughs> was signed somewhere, you know? Yeah. And so he heard my record and, you know, was really sweet and got the poster framed, but I knew he didn't love it. Mm. Or even Don was, you know, a mentor of mine still. I love, like Don heard it. And I remember I didn't want him to hear it because at that point I knew it wasn't that good. Mm. And he heard it and he said, hey, I listened to your record. And I was like, oh, great. What did you think? And he said... And I love you, Don. Like, no worries. Thank you for this. He said, yeah, you know, it's just like you, you know, so nice. And I wanted to like melt into oh, the ground yeah. and never exist again, you know? And all of that really helped me. It was very traumatic at the time, mm. you know? And then I made the Orchard Sessions and just bungled along. And then, you know, the singer named Jose James invited me on tour. Oh. And I would say when you invited me on tour is when it shifted. Because I had been so part of this scene in Rockwood Music Hall in New York. Um, and that was all I wanted. All I wanted was to be a person at Rockwood. Mm. I used to come down to Rockwood in high school, down to the Lower East Side, and I would see, you know, Nora Jones and Duck Cover Cutie in this like tiny room, you know. And all I wanted was the bartender to know me and the owner to know me, and I could drink for free where everybody knows my name, you know? <laughs> <laughs> And it turns out that is not that hard right. to achieve. Um, so when you asked me to come out on tour with you, like I had a good, nice thing going here, you know, and I lived on Orchard three blocks from Rockwood and I was a person at Rockwood, you know. And when you invited me out on tour, I went to places I'd never been. I mean, we went to like 60 cities mm. and I got to see this enormous world, you know, and different countries that reacted to our music in different ways. Right, right. You know? So different songs are huge in Holland and Germany and Argentina and Japan. Mm. You know, especially Japan. May God bless Japan. Right. And <laughs> so that is when I sort of at first got the idea that I've now incorporated into my life. Mm. That there's a big wide world out there. And how are you going to reach that world? Because... My life, despite this being the big, you know, the city that everyone wants to come to, my life had gotten very, very small here in New York. Mm. So I'd say that's when it shifted. But still, it took f 
four years after that tour for me to get to this album. Mm. And then also, uh, weirdly, when I read my friend Ari Herstan's book, my friend Ari Herstan wrote a book called How to Make It in the New Music Business, and where he, he referenced a phrase that I now take with me everywhere, which is that a successful musician is a musician who makes music and pays their bills with it. Amen. So once I thought of that, like it sort of shifted into like, but yeah, I mean, when, it, when did it become this is what I do when mm. I started writing songs? That's mm. when. When I started writing songs, I was like, oh, I'm, a, I'm real good at this. Right. Um, you know, because singing, you can sort of feel like, mm, like I, I don't, despite being so vivacious, there is still a part of me that kind of shrinks. Mm. But in songwriting is the place where I can be like, oh, no, I'm real fucking good at this. Like I can come <laughs> in here and, and write you a song in, a, mm. in less than a day. You know, we can write two if you want, you know. And so like sort of that, those sessions in your album where I started writing with Molly Music, I was like, oh, no, I, I'm good at this. This is yeah. what I do. You guys wrote that song, one of my favorite songs I've ever, you know, performed and recorded to be with you. Yeah. And that was a really, really special day. Yeah. We wrote that in 45 minutes. Yeah. Yeah. It's interesting that you mentioned that. I think everybody's first big tour is a really like a, a life changing thing, mm-hmm. you know, because it's kind of, it's kind of an interesting situation now where like, you know, you think of like Tank and the Bangas or somebody mm-hmm. who's like, you you work really hard. You're part of like this scene, and now there are all these sort of like windows to the world, you know, through the internet, like NPR or Tiny Desk or Bandcamp or you know SoundCloud or whatever it is, mm. YouTube, Instagram. You know, it can be. You never know what it's going to be, and then all of a sudden, and this happened to me. You know, um, when I went to to London to work with Giles, I had never left the country yeah. really. And next thing I know, you're putting out an album and you're, you're touring around the world. And like you said, you're able to sort of like get this experience that you didn't have when you were making the album. Mm-hmm. And that's kind of fascinating because, and it brings us back to the second album concept, because your first album, you're, it's like your whole lived experience in one thing, mm-hmm. right? And you also don't necessarily have that worldly experience of how your music is going to be experienced all over the world no idea right yeah and so i think people really kind of like that where it's like oh man the fujis are so new york or whatever Mm. you know they weren't like dropping like london stuff you know they were they're a certain package and then when you get bigger it's like do you keep that same thing or do you let those other influences in that i've never thought about this i'm kind of like in real time and it's almost impossible to recreate that first thing Yes, which is what I'm trying to remind myself. Because I keep trying and it sounds so bad. Mm. <laughs> <laughs> it really does, you know? I even went back to Josiah's studio in mm-hmm. L.A. And, and I'm like, we got to make it sound like Tolly. Mm. That wasn't what I was thinking when I was writing that first album. Right. You know? You and were exploring. So, and- yeah, it was just, you know, let's try and write a fast one now. Mm. You know? <laughs> and so... I think the answer to that question, it's not one of our official questions, is to, you know, is what I bring to every session when I'm writing for someone else. It's like, it shouldn't be that precious. Mm. It can't. Yeah. Right. You just try to have fun with it. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Well, this is the saddest part of the podcast. We're on the final question. Really? Yeah. Oh my God. It yeah. flew by. It's funny. I was thinking to myself, like, oh God. This is real long. I'm so super boring. So we did it. We did it. <laughs> I didn't bore them to death. I think they're still alive. 
You're a fascinating individual. Oh my gosh, thank you so much. Never stop complimenting me. Legacy is a challenging word, but what would you like to pass on to the next generation? Can I have two answers to that question? You can have as many as you want. Okay. As long as they're good. Well, I always say that if a song of mine could ever be for someone else what Amelia by Joni Mitchell was for me, that would break my heart into a million beautiful love pieces. That would just be the best gift in the world. Mm. Um, I would love for, you know, and I'm in this really unique place because no one really knows my music right now. (laughs) So who knows? Ask me on Saturday. (laughs) But um, I would love for my music to get someone through a hard time. Mm. Um, You know, Hear You Now, for example, which for me I wrote to myself to help me get to a place where I could even speak about trauma, not even what happened to me, just get myself to a place. That's what those lyrics are about. Mm. And a friend of mine, because no one has the album yet, a friend of mine called me and told me that, you know, she listened to that song on the way to addressing an abuser and I cried all day, mm. you know? The idea that that could bring someone strength was not something I thought about. So I would like that as a legacy would be really nice. Um, but also as a Jewish woman making what I call Jewish contemporary pop music, I would love to widen the conversation mm. um, about what Jewish culture is, Um, and maybe open people's eyes to how beautiful our culture is and how broad and wide it is. Um, Because I think, especially in America, there's this concept of, you know, like white Ashkenazi Jews, and it's really myopic, and it's not even remotely accurate. Mm. Um, So I would love to have it to widen that idea and to bring people into aspects of our culture and the different you know, sex of our culture. I mean, there are Jews in Ethiopia and there are Mizrahi Jews and, you know, Sephardic Jews and Jews in Japan. And I just, you know, I, I'm so proud of that part of my identity now. Um, you know, and especially in this moment in time, again, like something that people, that something in the part of the theme of the podcast has been talking about negative things, um, but that I see as positive. Like I actually see that we're in this like beautiful moment of diasporic progressive Jewish people and I'm so proud to be one of them you know and especially to be back in New York now because there are just so many amazing amazing people doing amazing work you know and Jews for racial and economic justice and you know a lot narrow and like all these amazing people that I'm meeting so I would love for that to be part of my legacy but mostly that first part <laughs> <laughs> that people would live with my music and grow with my music and that it would um or songs I wrote, you know, like I cried. Clearly, I cry a lot. <laughs> well, I cried for like three fucking days when I found the live recording of Donny Hathaway singing "You've Got a Friend." Um, listen to it, you guys, if you haven't, um, because not only is it so stunning, there's this like spectacular crowd who's singing with him in mm. this way that's like just such like Black American excellence. I mean, it's fucking spectacular, um, and. I also cried because Carol King, a Jewish woman from Queens, wrote that song. Mm-hmm. And just the idea of like a full circle of creation 
um, that live recording is that to me. It's the writer who wrote this song who sat mm. in Queens and wrote this like beautiful anthemic fucking song. And then Donny Hathaway sings it to this audience of people who are creators in themselves and mm. enhance it so much. And then like, I'm listening to it <laughs> in Silver Lake, you know, mm. just like pulled over and sobbed. So I would like for that to be the case with my music. Oh, that's beautiful. Thank you. Are you going to get there? That's yeah. the hope. Yeah. Congratulations on your debut album coming out Thank this Friday. You. I am here. Rainbow Blonde. So exciting. Oh, my God. Can't wait for the world to hear what I hear when I hear your music, which is just deep, powerful, uplifting message of strength and hope and unity and uh like an inner self-worth you, you know like exploration and the honesty of the self which is really refreshing thank you i mean you know while we're doing compliment city there's no way on planet earth i could have gotten here without your amazing help and support and guidance um so you're the best and now we have a record label yeah and a podcast and oh. i'm excited to hear I, if you're listening let me know what you think of it because uh that's what i live for not your approval, but the connection with you. <laughs> <laughs> Where can people find you? Yeah, I'm. My name is Tali T A A L I. So I'm on Instagram at Tali Music T A A L I Music, like the word music that we listen to. Um, I'm on Twitter. It's Tali Tweets, and on Facebook, I'm Tali. And my website is tallymusic.com. And also, I live in New York. So if you see me, just, you know, stop me and holla. give me a <laughs> Don't do that. Please don't, don't do holla. that, what I just said. Don't don't hurt me. <laughs> thank you so much for being on the show. It was great to have you. I really appreciate it. Of course. Thank you for having me. This has been 1 plus 2 plus 3 plus 4. I'm Jose James, and today's guest was Tali. Thank you so much for listening. To hear more episodes, you can find us on our website at www.rainbowblondrecords.com podcast. You can subscribe at Apple Podcasts, on Spotify, or wherever you listen to your podcasts. And if you like what you heard, give us a review. We appreciate the love. And as always, wishing you success on your creative journey. Peace. Happy to be here. That was a terrible was end. Terrible. Give me another one. Give me another one. Give me another one. That was the worst. Oh my God. I hate myself so much. No, 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 no. Another one. Another one. Oh, you know what I forgot? What'd you forget? My favorite thing on Earth right now is my soda stream. Oh, you missed it. Oh, missed it. fuck. <laughs> Damn it. Oh my God. Okay, sorry. You have to thank me.